Hi, I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. Welcome to Negotiation in Real Life and our first episode for 2023. We've had a fantastic break, but we're back and we've got a great lineup of guests ready to come to you over the next couple of months. So I hope you enjoy them. In today's episode of Negotiation in Real Life, I speak with Brad Nickel. Brad is a senior associate at Hicks Oakley Chessel Williams in Melbourne. At his firm, he's been afforded the opportunity to pursue his passion for both the front end and back end of commercial law, particularly in the franchising context. This means Brad is regularly called on to employ negotiation skills to advance his client's interests, whether it be the negotiation of a business acquisition or the resolution of a dispute. In our discussion, we talk about mediating in a franchising context, the benefits of mediating early, the litigation strategy of bleeding the other party dry, and I can't say we recommended it, whether going to mediation should be seen as a positive thing or a negative thing, tips for due diligence before entering a franchise agreement, front-end and back-end negotiation styles, the importance of getting a signed agreement at the end of a mediation, and much, much more. I hope you like this episode. Please reach out if you've got any suggestions for guests or ideas of things you'd like us to cover. In the meantime, it's over to Brad. So, Brad, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome to Negotiation in Real Life. Oh, thank you, Nicole. Thanks for, for uh, making the time to have a listen to my, to my ramblings. Um, <laughs> I am looking I can... forward to your ramblings indeed, <laughs> indeed. And I know we um, had a chat the other day prior to the podcast and um, you were saying that, you know, your specialty as a lawyer is in franchising, that, but that encompasses quite a few things. So perhaps before we get into talking about negotiation, you might just like to give the listeners a bit of an overview of who you are and, and what you do. Sure, sure. Uh, well, look, I'm I'm currently a senior associate at a, a firm called Hicks Oakley Chessel Williams. Uh, it's, it's a private practice in endeavour, and, and 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 the bulk of my day is uh, spent, you know, uh, doing both the front end and, and the back end stuff within the uh, the general commercial area. A large part of that commercial area entails. Uh, franchising, which then is, I would describe to be a an umbrella term for negotiation, drafting, and advising on on contracts uh, between franchisors and franchisees, uh, advising on compliance, and a large a large part of it also involves uh, a, quite a fair bit of dispute work when the uh, relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee, unfortunately. Uh, devolves and there needs to be some type of outcome to to resolve the problem so i guess um 
if I was to pick a favourite part of all of that, it would generally be the back-end type of stuff, the the argy-bargy of arguments and advocacy and, and so forth. But um, uh, it, it is an area that uh, does command a fair bit of, well, a large appreciation of the front end. So being able to work at a firm that offers both and being able to uh, bang on the craft in, in both context, the front and the back end, has been really helpful to me. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so true, isn't it, that, you know, if you're a back end lawyer, understanding what's gone on at the beginning and how that all works is helpful. But I think also for front end lawyers to really understand how the dispute process works and really opens their eyes about what they need to do at the early stages to try and ultimately avoid disputes rather than... Um, have to get to that stage anyway so it's good to have a combination i think oh look absolutely and that's why i i retain a a foot in in both camps no one i think ever signs up to an agreement and i hope to 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 go to court you know at any stage during that agreement you know the the objective most of the time is for for both parties to make money and and flourish and you know advance their positions in life generally Mm. interesting because i often liken um you know, whether it's a, a business ownership or whether it's a franchise, those agreements up front, I liken a lot to a marriage. It's, it's you know, that commitment to each other, as you say, to go ahead and make money. But just as in marriage, often couples won't look at doing a prenup and, and don't want to face the fact that disputes might arise. How do you find it in the, the sort of front-end work that you do about the willingness of parties to put in or, or spend time thinking about the dispute resolution clauses that they might put into those front-end agreements? Look, I, I absolutely agree with you that, you know, carrying on with your analogy as marriage, the, the honeymoon period is most of the time when uh when I see franchisees say come in and, and, and ask for advice around a, a franchise agreement, and most of the time, that is uh, their rose-coloured glasses, or the you know the courting phase has occurred, and the the seeds have been planted from the um, from the franchise or sales representatives just about how great a certain system is. Now, trying to pump the brakes and and having a franchisee, I suppose, um, come to appreciate that that individual that they've been dealing with is uh, liable to to potentially leave that organisation um, to um, to to not come good on some of some of the uh, promises that they have made potentially on the way going into the franchise. Uh, and 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 essentially trying to um, have the fr- a prospective franchisee look at it, as you said, just like a marriage, particularly given the length of term of franchise agreements. You know, generally speaking, about five years. Um, five years plus, you know, there are generally obligations like restraints and you know undertakings as to confidentiality that will 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 impact on the franchisee's life moving forward. Uh. Um, I suppose. If I'm advising a franchisor and I've had ample opportunity to do advisory work and uh, dispute work for franchisors throughout my career as well, um, I'd like to say make um, compliance part of your strategy, which is essentially just be as transparent as possible and and really promote as close as possible to 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 equal information as you as you can, so that franchisees that go come into the 
the network do do so with their eyes open. Now, yep. in terms of the dispute resolution processes, um, yeah, the, the, the there is a franchising code of conduct that uh, applies to virtually all franchise agreements that that come across uh, my desk, and, and and there is a mandatory dispute resolution process um, that, um, that 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 can be followed, or and if it's not followed, the party that's not following that process can be liable for a breach of good faith, which is a, a you know, if you're a franchisor facing that type of allegation, there's an objective penalty that attaches to a breach of good faith. But that whole process, you know, it, it requires parties to, uh, to if, should they come to the dispute, set out um, the general nature of the dispute, the uh, steps that the other party they consider should take to resolve that dispute and ultimately their desired outcomes. Um, so I know many of your guests and I've, I, I know that mediation generally is is um, is conducted in a um, post-litigation or post-filing you know, context, but most of the time within franchising, it's actually before either party has determined to um, you know, sue the other one in court and make it a, a public... Yeah, which which I really enjoy working on those because I'm, um, as I think you're aware, I'm one of the franchising mediators on the panel for the Australian and small Australian small business family enterprise ombudsman who manages that franchising code, and I see it as a real benefit that parties are coming to mediation before the litigation has proceeded. And anyone who's listened to the podcast before knows I'm a massive advocate for early intervention mediation. But interestingly, one of the things that I find is people will, you know, when I talk to them, they're like, oh, we're really hoping to avoid mediation, like mediation is this sort of punishment or, or something as, as opposed to a helpful tool. Um, where do you sit around bringing parties to mediation within the dispute resolution process? I, I, should, I should clarify that whilst the code does pre prescribe a, a mediation process and more recently uh, an arbitration by agreement process, there, there is no, there's technically no prohibition on parties just suing each other off the bat. It's not customary to do so, um, but we've got to really look at the context and the context most of the time is that you'll have a, a franchisee that is, they're alleging that they've lost a hell of a lot of money, say, uh, because of their entry into the franchise. They're not going to be the ones to front up with $2 million worth to advance a case in the highest courts in the land. That said, of course, there is the ACCC that is you know, significantly uh, well-resourced to, to do that if they, they choose to. But I would say that 90% of the time you've got a set of circumstances where there are genuine calls of action, you would think, if you're acting for a franchisee against the franchisor you've got hurt feelings you've got got a lot of animosity and you've got this ongoing contract that basically requires them to continue to pay the franchise or well uh, franchise fees or marketing fees or both um and, and and so where i see the place for for mediation with for for franchisees in particular it is an opportunity to prepare what your case would be and go to the mediation, leave nothing on the table and 
the great benefit of doing that is that you are avoiding, obviously, the costs of litigation, which I think every mediator I've ever come across will, will even during an opening or, you know, very early on say, look, have you considered the costs of that? The media of going beyond, you know, your patent, the cost of litigation, and if I've done done my job correctly, the franchisee uh, will be incredibly um, well informed around just 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 those those costs. Really, the idea of a pre-litigation mediation is only as as useful as as how the other side views the process and and how seriously they take it and. Potentially, you could have a set of circumstances where a franchise all just views the the pre-litigation mediation as a annoying step and, and and sort of a a chore that comes as a result of the franchising code of conduct that they have to go uh, through. But they use the they use the mediation as nothing more as a as part of a war of attrition on a franchisee. In other words, make the franchisee spend all the money on lawyers and, you know, preparing a very um, detailed argument or, you know, just really having invested a fair fair bit of money and then just almost counting on on a tendency of, of a, a party that can't afford to go to litigation just simply not to profit to, to pursue the matter any further. Fortunately, that's not been my over, overall experience. Most of the time, franchisors are, are well advised to engage and engage meaningfully in, in this mediation process under the code. There are benefits for them to do so. And indeed, when I'm acting for franchisors, it's never my position that we just go to a mediation and not participate at all and just, you know, waste the day and, and, and drain the resources I think that sort of appetite of franchisors to get involved and, and resolve things amicably, or at least to resolve things in a structured way, has probably improved because of the risks of reputation and social media now. Because if you're a franchisor trying to sell franchises and there's complaints about the way that you've treated franchisees, it's going to make life much more difficult so perhaps before the era of social media they were more willing to do that sort of let's bleed them dry strategy that you've talked about and it becomes a little harder for that to work these days I think so it's interesting that your experience is that that's not being done as much perhaps. If I'm acting for a franchise or my my ultimate um, takeaways to them are it really it really is an opportunity to avoid a, a massive business destruction it's an opportunity to avoid something uh, going public that you otherwise you know can uh, cannot really afford to 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 go public it's an opportunity to get creative and 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 and, and really obtain some security some control over what happens next because there is a disclosure regime that franchisors need to abide by part of that is is they have to disclose how many mediations they've uh, as, as a percentage, how many how many um, mediations um, franchisees have initiated, or, or that they've initiated against franchisees in disclosure documents? Yeah. When I'm advising on the front end, uh, I have a look at that part of the disclosure document. I, I also look at um, you know former franchisees um, and whether they've given their contact details, uh, and what are former franchisees going to say about you? 
in the future if we don't resolve this matter now because the one again some free advice that is out there on on the ACCC's website is that there's a strong encouragement for prospective franchisees to request details of former franchisees so that they can get it straight from the um, the horse's mouth around really really what was it like to be a franchisee of X brand. Yeah, I find it interesting that you say that part of the disclosure statement is how many mediations the franchisor has been involved in because, once again, to me, that's suggesting that it's a bad thing if the franchisor has been through mediations. And it really then would stop a franchisor from saying, look, things are getting a bit tough. Rather than letting this fester and get worse, let's bring in an independent person to help us nail this on the head and and get this resolved. You know, once again, I, I think it's interesting within the profession more broadly that often mediation is seen as this thing that you want to avoid rather than here's something that can help us actually get into the heart of a dispute faster and start resolving it. Just my little observation. Yeah, yeah, that that is an interesting take on that. I mean, I would say that, you know, there is there is 21 days for, for the parties to seek to resolve the dispute by themselves and, and, you know, without the intervention of a mediator. So there is that, I suppose, there is the context in which a mediation or, or is actually um, conducted uh, is that, you know, there's been three weeks of time where, where, where the parties are supposed to have tried to work together to see if there can be a... Uh, if they could reach an outcome, um, so I guess with that, with that in mind, I, and I, look, I, I personally think it is Im- important to know just really what's the temperature of the network just before you buy into the franchise. You know, is it is it unhappy? Because most people don't go and engage lawyers just for the fun of it. They 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 get a cost estimate. They see it's going to cost them money. If they're well advised, they'll be told about the business disruption expenses as well, the stomach lining expenses. And and I will say to to anyone, whether it's a franchise or, or a franchisee or, or anyone that even outside the context, is there's no friendly way to do this. In, in the minds of many that receive a a, a notice of dispute or a um, you know, uh, any type of invitation to to discuss matters where lawyers are involved. I, it's my true belief that that most people interpret that as an attack. So I, I guess I I do think there is a lot of there's a lot of work to do, and there's a lot of opportunity in the framing of a dispute, and really and really to to try to get the other party to abandon maybe the reptilian instinct to. To just be on the defensive and freezing. Oh, look, you have absolutely described there my key bugbear with the entire legal system. And I won't spend too much time going into this at the moment, but the legal system that we have is the adversarial system that really derived from criminal law. And it does put people into battle mode. And that's where, as you say, you know, the number of times that I have seen people come to mediation where everything was going swimmingly, the negotiations were going fine, and then one of the parties got their lawyers involved and sent a lawyer's letter to the other side, and the other lo- the other side then just stepped out of the negotiations completely because they were terrified. It had gone legal, and now suddenly there was this big threat over their head. And by the time we get to mediation, I can think of one example specifically, this was a landlord tenant. The, the landlord's going, I don't understand what happened. We were negotiating. Things were getting fine. 
I went and got my lawyer just to make sure I was dotting all the I's and crossing the T's and hadn't missed anything. And next thing, I don't hear anything from the tenant. And the tenant goes, God, we didn't think you wanted to negotiate anymore. That's why you got your lawyer involved. So that's the whole thing about our legal system. Perhaps what we could do is talk a little bit specifically about negotiations and particularly your experience of negotiations. Obviously, you know, you've said you do front end, which is for the non-lawyers in the audience, that's sort of the, the contract design and deal making as opposed to the back end, which is the dispute. What's your experience of negotiating in these two different arenas? Do you change your style? Do you do things differently, whether it's front end or back end? Yeah, so uh, look, I had to be the, the one giving the lawyerly answer, but it really does depend and, and it depends on how the to use, I think, what is kind of an adversarial term in any event, but how the other side um, behaves when, a, a, say, you say in the front end there's a proposed amendment or, or whatever the case is, how they behave is really going to be largely determinative of what you you consider to be an appropriate negotiation tool. So to, to, to give an example, I think one of the surprises or the realities of working in the, the front end or the drafting and that is that oftentimes you'll pick up the phone. That's generally my style is to say in a business transaction, pick up the phone, make the introductions and, and go, right, okay, well, you know, look forward to working with you, X, Y, and Z. It's meant to be a cooperative. It's meant to be a um, a, a relatively less adversarial environment. But I, but I have to tell you that sometimes you'll pick up the phone in the most um, objectively friendly of transactions, and it's like the person on the other side is is just you know you're in in, in an appeal court and you know there, there's there's just absolutely no love lost between you, and so. That's been part of my experience, I think. And um, in terms of the the adversarial side of things, well, that is, that sort of is what it is. My my approach is is generally to to approach uh, reasonably and to to approach w with some form of of dispassion and some form of I guess I'd like to think logic because particularly in the front end, you know, there there are there are two people that are respective clients that have formed the view that they want something more or less that looks like what they've instructed us and and how quickly we get there is is really now the part that we play in in the process um it has been incredibly useful to in both contexts front and back to basically check really what it is with the client and it sounds very very trite but really making sure that your instructions marry up to what is on the black and white in the contract in front of you. That's such an important thing and it's interesting because one of the things that I do when I'm teaching negotiation is the difference between what I talk about as positions and options and the position will be the client's told you this is what I want. The interest is what does that give them what's really important and unless you understand why they want specific things, when the other side says, well, no, we can't give you that, it, it doesn't leave you much wiggle room. So actually getting the client to understand, well, you know, if I want 30-day commercial terms, for example, why is it important? What What is it that I'm trying to achieve through that so that you've got some scope in the negotiations to go, okay, well, they can't give me 30 days, but what they can do is pay lump sums or, I don't know, they might have something different that they can do. 
Uh, the clients are generally, I have found, from the commercial point of view, they are the ones that will that can often offer way more than what you can offer in the commercial context, and that's a that's a, an open admission that you know you, your mind is on on the legals, and and you 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 of course are commercial. That's you know it, it does it's vital that you're commercial in your approach to things. But but I've seen clients get commercial to a level that you. I suppose your instructions don't really uh, invite you to to go down. But a book that I think everyone ought to read, if not already, and, and it was recommended to me by a, a highly um, effective negotiator is is getting to yes. Um, it's it seems like it's required reading for for anyone who wants to further their negotiation um, prowess. And I think when I'm not only when I'm when I'm actually in a negotiation, but when I'm when I'm taking instruction, there's a there's a passage in that book that I I, I defer to and I, I a lot, and it, it's you know the most powerful interests are the basic human needs such as security, economic well-being, and a sense of belonging and control over one's life, and the negotiation that that follows from taking instruction on and, and advising on, or, or, you know, on, on how to best get those um, interests across the line is so much fuller and so much more meaningful when you just have an appreciation of what, what is it really that people are trying to get to because for them, they don't understand generally that, you know, the lack of a vendor's guarantee, so you're acting for the, the purchaser. Well, you know, the vendor's the company. They've said that they won't compete. But, you know, they until you actually explain, you know, the directors without the guarantee, say, may be able to compete against you unless we actually document this thing. And it, that all traces back to what happens after this is done. So employing the, the negotiation tactics are fantastic because it also kind of dredges up really sometimes it's the converse it doesn't result in everybody clinking champagne at the end of the day it actually results in the other side's lack of bona fides and in, in, in cutting the deal coming to the surface you know reticence to provide security for vendor finance you know um and and so forth and and you know there's been most things go through without a hitch right but there's been quite a few times where when things haven't gone through you go, thank God, because there, there was never really, there was never going to be a situation where those basic human needs were met uh, without having gone through the negotiation process. Absolutely. And I think that's that's such a key. I mean, you've talk, talked about there so many things that I cover when I'm doing training and love that you've come back to getting to yes. Some people will say getting to yes is a bit old hat now, but I think as a foundation and fundamentals, it is absolutely the place to start with negotiation. For listeners who don't want to read the whole book, there is a summary of getting to yes on my website. Um, so head to my blog and have a look at that. And that human needs, there's also an article on my blog about that, five things you know before every negotiation. So have a look at that for some discussion around that. But I think you've absolutely nailed that, Brad. It's you know super important to understand the psychological elements that are at play in every negotiation, not just the, the logical and rational, as you said. I mean, you've got to be logical and rational, but Fundamentally, every human decision is an emotional one. So I'm interested, I mean, obviously you've read Getting to Yes. Interestingly, I find given that negotiation is one of the core skills of a practicing lawyer, it is a skill that's not particularly taught at law school. 
aside from reading and experience, is there anything else that you've done to develop your skills? Yeah, look, and, and this is not, um, I can tell the listeners, this isn't something Nicole has put me up to, to <laughs> doing. Uh, but it is it is listening to, and I'm sure you might say it's like reading, but but I think it, I think it's completely different. It's listening to podcasts such as this one, um, hearing from 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 others just what has worked uh, for them, and and looking at you know the recurring the recurring themes um, and the you know you know the, the, the recurring themes because they're effective, and you know you've got a bunch of independent people saying the same thing and, and you go right okay well there's a there's a principle that I should adopt I think negotiation perhaps if it were taught in law school and if it were taught in business school and if it were taught uh, you know as part of a professional legal training course and I think it is and in fact I know it is but I, there, there, there really is no replacing experience and and hopefully um there's not well. There will never be anything that replaces experience. But the second best of that is learning from others to the best uh, ability uh, to, yeah. to the best that you can. I agree. It's also I... maintaining the flexibility in your approach. Sorry, yeah. I spoke over you. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, and and you're right. It is taught at legal training because I was teaching negotiation at the College of Law as part of their PLT course for about five years. And I have to say, it was repeatedly. Out of the five days of practical training that people had on campus, it was the one day that everyone loved the most because they could see the application, not just in their work, but it's also an everyday life skill. So I think that's really great. And as you said, experience is the most important teacher, but I think having a good theoretical understanding to underpin that before you go in is actually really important as well. It speeds up the experience process if you've got some of those ground rules to start with, I think. That being said, I'm interested in what have been some of the pivotal negotiations in your career, some of the negotiations or a negotiation that sticks in your mind as being a massive learning experience for you. So this this is more so in the adversarial context, you know, prior to litigation, you know, it's a franchising dispute. It's I'm I'm one year post admission, I'm I'm acting for a franchise or and I have prepared for this thing as prepared as prepared as I could be for this thing I should say you know I've, I've trawled through I've done chronologies I've done as much verification as I could um, and the the mediations in a in a different state uh, fly over there I fly over with a, a senior person from from uh, the um, head office of the franchise or and um, we have an amazing experience of going through the chronology, picking holes in the other side story. Um, uh, the other side was not as prepared, basically. So we have this fantastic day of proving how wrong they are, you know, respectfully, though, like we weren't, you know, but at the same time, you know, there were so many runs on the board and it culminates, you know, the the... The, the, the thing about this mediation was it started at nine in the morning and about eight o'clock at night, we finally get to this um, situation that just, like, you could not have written a better outcome, okay? But it's dot-pointed and it's, you know, it's in gen general terms, everyone's hungry, everyone wants to, uh, wants to leave, right? 
and, and we'll leave the documenting for tomorrow or the next day because we're all exhausted and we're all we're all of one mind. Well, it's a familiar tale. You know, you wake up the next day, you contact the other side, there's no response for a few hours, turns into a day. Um, and, and, and ultimately what comes of it is nothing because there's, you know, you've just got these little dot points in paper. You've not actually concluded the deal. And it's horrific because you've you've reached a false summit on, you know, you think you've just, you're going to be able to go back to, you know, you jump on the plane, go back to an office, you know, celebrate your, your, your win in inverted commas. But in reality, what has happened is you've gone the opposite direction. You've, you've, you've had people basically sign something in principle, right, yep. that, that, that doesn't quite marry up to, it doesn't quite meet the test of you know, an agreement. It's, it's, a, it's this document that they wake up the next day and go, there's no way in hell we can actually comply with these terms. Yep. We were exhausted by the end of the day and, 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 and the practical reality is that there's no resolution. And from that, I took that you can, you can um, prepare and that was great. That was incredibly helpful and that's something I still do to this day, right? Being able to, 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 to point out holes in a chronology is something that I will always say is so incredibly important. But what I took from that was, first of all, conclude the deal on the day if you can. Um, you, you actually make it just such an essential thing that the deal is concluded on the day. And also, too, really sense check what it is your the other side is committing to because if the other side's committing to something that realistically was so fanciful and so you know objectively you know it seems seems to be too big too good to be true well what you have to take into account is that at some point somebody actually has to comply with the terms of this agreement somebody actually has to make payment of the sum that they've agreed to late on that you know on that night during you know when they're hungry and and, and the reality is is where is the outcome if people are just going to be able to wriggle out of it and not have any skin of the game invest skin in the game invested in that outcome well this is really interesting because you know i listen to this in the lens of being a mediator and i question what that mediator was doing in letting that situation happen because, yes, I get that, you know, one of the benefits of mediation is you do have some time constraints. So there is that sort of sense of pressure to get to an outcome. But one of the things that I think every mediator should really be doing is reality checking the agreement that is being put in place. So there's, there's two things that I think that mediator could have done differently without being disrespectful to the mediator because I wasn't there in the room and I don't know what was going on. But firstly, I would want to go through and reality check as people are just agreeing to things, how is that going to work? And that could be as simple, you know, one of the questions that I'll often, you know, one of the things that I'll often get with some of my rent relief mediation is people would say, oh, that's okay. I'll now, if, if we agree to this rent relief, I'll catch up the arrears in 24 hours. And the first question I will have for them is, what is the daily transaction limit on your bank account? Because if you owe 50 grand and you can only transfer 25 grand a day, you're not going to be able to comply. So I'm going and asking the questions to make sure that what's being agreed to actually can be done. Now, that was a really simple example I gave, but obviously in more significant ones, I'm going to make sure people have thought about, well, what does this mean for you? How does that impact on your business going forward if you agree to this? Because the mediator's job is not to get a settlement at any cost. It's to get a, a long-lasting 
sticky settlement. The other thing that I think is this ability to actually, you know, we, we get sort of constrained by the fact that a mediation is, you know, a half day or a whole day and we feel like we need to get to the outcome. That sounds to me like it was a perfect opportunity for the mediator to say, look, you're very close, but I think we need to actually adjourn this and come back so that we can go through and finalise that documentation to make sure everything's going to work in practice, which I'll be interested to hear your views on this because, you know, for me, when I have lawyers say, look, we're, we're fine, we've got an agreement, um, just close the mediation, we'll go and document it. I sometimes get that sinking feeling in my stomach going, oh, is it going to all work out or are they going to come up with little arguments that are going to make the whole thing fall apart? And and I think when we spoke the other day, I talked about the fact the way I like to, to go through drafting is often to get a shared document on the screen so that people can quite quickly and effectively draft that document in collaboration rather than, you know, I'll send you a draft, you send me back your markups and then we'll do more markups and eventually we'll get there. But, you know, the ability to say, look, we've, we've got this far, we've made this progress, we need to now come back to finalise to make sure we get a binding document is something I think doesn't happen as often as it could. So I'm interested what your thoughts would be around that, Brad. You know, sharing the document on screen and getting, getting the actual document that is not, you know, getting the document to be a current proposition as opposed to some proposition in the future. Um, you know, once everyone's had a chance to 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 really sit back and, and and you know figure out how to wriggle out of something that you know they've just they've done they've made the classic mistake of agreeing to something just so something will go away. It's like the sugar hit. I am a huge huge proponent of cutting to the chase as much as what you you can, and I think that. You know, it's funny to me with mediations, the drafting of the agreement is left often to the last few hours of the day. The parties are fatigued, the parties are hungry, the parties are, you know, they just want it to be over with. And 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 I've always thought, you know, it's such a, an imposition on these tired parties to at the last couple of hours just go, right, let's let's now let's now finally essentially reach the agreement because, you know, the agreement is is talk is just interrupted air up until the point where you've actually got some terms on the on the table. So far as I'm concerned, uh, so yes, I, I'm a huge proponent of sealing the deal on the day. That's that's it. And and if if the parties and their respective representatives have done their job leading into the mediation, there is no occasion to argue that oh well you know we weren't ready. You caught us with a you know, you caught us on a by surprise, or you've you know, there's some reason, there's some some reason why you know this agreement should not otherwise be enforceable. Um, if the parties have have gone in, they're well advised. There's been you know exchange of documents. There's there's an agreed set of facts, maybe maybe you know that's that's the that's the thing. But then the facts in dispute of this, you know, there's no reason why there's no reason why you can't expedite what you're ultimately going to have to do in the litigation context. Um, there's no reason why you can't take control of that process yeah. um, and, and get the benefits of that process. You might find if you ask the other side to to produce X, Y, and Z or to, you know, justify what they've said here and there in an email and they can't, well, you know, what's going to change between that and the date that, that you actually file? Well, Theoretically, nothing should change. They should be upfront. They should be honest. You know, there's there's an element of of, of trust that will be um, 
abrogated significantly if that position does change. So, you know, it's in everyone's interest to, um, during the mediation, um, sure, be prepared, you know, um, come to terms, but 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 really bring those terms to the to the forefront, to the forefront as, as soon as you possibly can. Because uh, because there's so much scope for the deal to go awry. Yeah, totally. And and I think you know there will be times when new information comes up in the mediation that hasn't been shared for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's the opportunity to defer the mediation and give the party that has just received this information time to go and reflect and think about it, rather than just continuing saying, "Oh no, we must get to, uh, to an outcome today," because they're the times I think that people will then go, "Oh sh." you know, oops, I agreed to this, but I hadn't really fully examined the impact of this thing. So that's where I think, you know, the the ability to defer mediation and come back, you know, this idea that mediation is just one time and then it's either settle or not settle, as opposed to it can be more of a process, is something that I think needs to change in how we view the mediation process itself. But, you know, that's me getting on my soapbox again. I would love to know, before we finish up, what would be your key tip? If you had to give one tip around how to improve your negotiations, what would be the number one thing that you would tell people to make sure they do in each negotiation they're involved in? So so to, to improve your negotiation skills, it is so vital to just throw yourself into those podcasts I mentioned and other podcasts as well as as well as books but you know you you actually have to live the experience and 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 avail yourself to the opportunities uh to negotiate you know obviously scale how how much you do this but try different techniques there are principles that can be applied to most cases but at the end of the day you're dealing with the site as you mentioned earlier there's a psychology on the other end that you need to appreciate and you also really need to, you need to be able to be flexible in the negotiation and you need to be able to have a variety of options available to you in, in terms of negotiation techniques to avail yourself of. And you don't know what those options are until you actually learn from others and you throw yourself into that into the process. Within the franchising context, there are unique, as, a, as I've said, disclosure requirements for franchisors there's an ongoing relationship there are there are there for franchisees if there's no negotiated outcome that that is reached and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of real estate to be gained by really understanding just what it is the franchisor is going to have to say moving forward what what the franchisor is going to have to tell the existing network and likewise you know what the franchisee uh, might say after termination or what the staff of the franchisee might say about the franchisee after termination if it goes to the, the litigious context. So uh, I think it's just throw yourself in, throw yourself in, appreciate the landscape that you're operating in because once you do that, your options are um, greatly increased because you can actually build a way forward for the other side to go, Right, what they're proposing gives me, you know, those it gives me economic well-being. It, it preserves my security. I can save face if I do this or that, you know. And 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 you can actually help them come to see it for themselves as opposed to advising them. But put a well-placed question here or there doesn't doesn't hurt, you know. Yeah, fantastic. And I love that piece of advice. Just get in there and do it. 
Um, and for people who want to practice their negotiation skills in a slightly safer way than doing it with real life clients or real life deals, stay tuned for the announcement of my negotiation master's program, which will be coming up, uh, which will be an ongoing opportunity for people to come and practice negotiation, get feedback and watch others as well. So think of it a bit like Toastmasters for negotiation, which will be coming later in 2023. But for now, Brad, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you about negotiation. Before we go, who are the sorts of people who should contact you for assistance and how do they get in touch with you? I've said a lot about franchising and, and, you know, naturally franchisors and franchisees alike, whether it's reviewing your agreements or, or your, you know, your compliance or, you know, giving your advice on, or giving you advice prior to your, your entry into a franchise agreement, or if it's in the context of a, of a dispute or a potential dispute, you know, you've got a very upset franchisee or a, an unforgiving franchise or um, come and see us. The, you know, franchising is a strong point, but I open the invitation to to any SME to any anyone who has a business problem or you know finds themselves on on the receiving end of an attack to come and see us at um, at Hicks Oakley Chesil Williams. You can find my details on that website. On LinkedIn, you can you can just 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 put in my name, Brad Nickel, and and that uh, we've got a commercial department, a, litig- a commercial litigation department. We do insolvency work, but, but come and see us, and we can we can bring quite a fair bit of perspective to, to your problem and some options and, and just, you know, give you give you an idea of what it is your options really are. I would advise even as a, even if you're not in a dispute, come and see us, get us to have a look at your practices if you're if you're in the franchising context and so that we can look at your compliance and see if there's any shortcomings or areas for improvement. Fantastic advice. So much risk in the franchising space if you haven't complied. The costs of that are going to far outweigh the costs of getting a legal consultation, I'm um, guessing. So, Brad, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much, Nicole. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, view presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application form. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.